and what I do and do not say. But I hope in the Q&A session, which is not going to be recorded, to perhaps um, have a more uh, open discussion. So what I will discuss with you is largely either in the public domain or matters which don't compromise this thing called solicitor-client privilege, which I'm not always very good at, so I need to remind myself to be the lecture. So I want to begin by saying that the reason why we're here today discussing um, justice for the Rohingya, which as I will explain is an exceedingly difficult task. I'm always reminded of uh, Hannah Arendt's famous letter to her mentor, Carl Jasperger, who uh, said at the conclusion of the Nuremberg Judgment in 1946 that the crimes of the Nazis explode the limits of the law. For such crimes, no punishment is enough. So I begin by saying that we have to be very humble when we speak about what the ICC, or frankly speaking, any other institution can do after the fact. So we're here because we have failed, once again, to prevent genocide, which after all is not a natural disaster, an earthquake or tsunami that comes out of nowhere. When I was working with the United Nations, uh, and I was, uh, in a sense, um, shaped in the crucible of Bosnia and Rwanda, uh, and the promises of uh, Secretary General uh, Kofi Annan that we need to move from, from punishment to prevention of genocide. And he appointed Special Advisor on Prevention of Genocide, Juan Mendez, an illustrious uh, human rights lawyer from uh, Argentina, uh, uh, who I uh, had the pleasure of uh, assisting in developing his mandate. So we still talk about early warning, we still talk about uh, responsibility to protect, and we have had many studies, uh, many PhD dissertations about these topics, but um, whether we're talking about Darfur, the Yazidi genocide, and now the plight of the Rohingya, these are catastrophic failures of the will to intervene, of the will to act. And as I will explain, it should not come as a surprise that what has been a long-standing entrenched policy of discrimination against the Rohingya minority in Myanmar, uh, including their statelessness for a prolonged period of time, their uh, demonization as uh, illegal immigrants, um, which is uh, part of the case that I will describe with you, uh, the term Rohingya is not used by the Myanmar government, uh, and the Rohingya are referred to as illegal Bengali immigrants, uh, and that, I will explain, is quite crucial in understanding the way in which a potential case before the ICC will be framed. So, this was a long time in the making, and the events <coughs> of 2016, in particular October 2016, when a member of the um, uh, uh, Arakanese um, uh, 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 revolutionary um, army, uh, Salvation Army, I think it's called, um, the someone Arsa, Arsa. Arsa, there we go. Uh, Arakan Rohingya Salvation Army. Army. Arsa, there we go. So, in October of 2016, when Arsa uh, had an attack against um, the Myanmar uh, military, that was the beginning of the dramatic escalation of the violence, which by uh, August of 2017 resulted in the, the mass uh, expulsion 
uh, of the Rohingya and the emergence in Bangladesh today of Kutupalong um, as the largest refugee camp uh, in the world. So having said that, here is the situation that we face today. We have failed once again to uh, intervene before what was a manageable conflict escalated into uncontrollable, some would argue, genocidal violence. And today we are left with the unpleasant task of seeing what justice, if any, can be delivered for the survivors. Before speaking about the ICC case, though, I want to share with you some reflections from my visit to Kutupalong in June. And when uh, Evo and I spoke uh, back in May, and we chose October 8th as the date for this lecture, I had not yet gone to uh, Kutupalong, and the ICC case hadn't really yet uh, emerged as a viable option. So it's quite remarkable how much has happened so quickly uh, during the past few months. Now, Kutupalong is uh, an exceptional site to behold. Uh, that area of Bangladesh was, until two years ago, a wildlife reserve where wild elephants uh, roamed. There was really nothing there. And upon entering Kutupalong, you see today a city of 700,000 people, which emerged after the events of 2017 to become the largest refugee camp in the world. It's best described as an ocean of misery. You have 700,000 people who have not only lost everything that they had, but upon speaking to the survivors, some of the accounts they have of what they've witnessed are truly unspeakable, but tragically very familiar, very familiar to what I heard in Bosnia and Rwanda and so on and so forth. It is, to quote the UN High Commissioner for Refugees, a textbook example of ethnic cleansing, violent demographic change, uh, uh, conceived and orchestrated as a systematic policy at the highest levels of the so-called Tatmadaw, the military uh, leadership of uh, Myanmar. So I want to maybe share with you some images um, from the camps taken by a dear friend of mine, Yusuf uh, Tushar, who uh, is a very well-known photographer in Bangladesh who took it upon himself to go to the camps uh, 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 out of pocket, in effect, to take these photographs uh, to uh, show the world the reality um, of this um, uh, sort of sea of uh, humanity which poured uh, into Bangladesh in the past several months. So the first image um, is a typical image of one of the uh, many children uh, in uh, Kutupalong camp, about 50%, 55% of the camp are youth uh, or children, and I believe up to 70 or 80% are uh, women and children in part because many of the men have been uh, systematically exterminated uh, when the Tadmadao uh, have attacked the Rohingya villages. The conditions, of course, are quite uh, appalling. Maybe we can just look at some of the other um, images. These were some of the images of the refugees coming across either the Naf River, which separates Myanmar from Bangladesh, or uh, otherwise coming across land crossings. Uh, and especially during the monsoon, uh, it's literally impossible to walk uh, in the mud fields. And I will explain the relevance of some of these images 
uh, also as a matter of uh, evidence why the circumstances of the crossing across the border is absolutely crucial to establishing the jurisdiction of the courts. <coughs> you can look at some of the other images. Uh, these are some of the children waiting to receive food. One of the remarkable things was that when the mass exodus began, there were really no UN agencies there to help the refugees. So a lot of the local farmers who were quite impoverished took it upon themselves to basically take all the rice they had, cook it in large pots, and come with their, uh, what do you call it, the tuk-tuk rickshaws, and to distribute it among the refugees. And it really puts to shame the sentiments of xenophobia and anti-refugee sentiment that we have in our prosperous part of the world, to have been a witness to their generosity. Next image. These are some of the images of women and children escaping across the water. Many, many people drown in the Naf River. The currents can be uh, very strong, so these are very uh, perilous circumstances under which the refugees come into Bangladesh. Maybe the next image as well. This is a typical image of how people came across the boundary. And today, those fences, which then were uh, so um, sort of flimsy that it was very easy for people to get into Bangladesh, had been replaced by a fortified boundary, uh, which is impossible to making it impossible for people to cross back into Myanmar. There is now uh, a fortified uh, fence, which is uh, two, three meters high, with uh, barbed wire and fencing. Uh, and part of the policy of the Myanmar government was to ensure that after the mass expulsion, the Rohingya would not subsequently be able to return to their homes. So the next image is that of the Bangladesh border guard. And these people are, in my mind, heroic figures. Because um, although their task is to protect the borders of Bangladesh, uh, many of them made extraordinary efforts to actually help the refugees when they arrived. And once again, before the humanitarian agencies arrived. And those of us who worked in the UN know that it takes quite some time before these agencies can, can mobilize. But the reason why I mention this uh, is that the border guards are probably some of the best witnesses to the policy of deportation, this being the real basis for the jurisdiction of the court, because many of them, um, using this uh, device that we're all familiar with by now, took photographs and films of what the Myanmar military were doing at the border in expelling the um, uh, Rohingya. And what's remarkable is that there is a place between the fence which marks the Myanmar border and the actual border with Bangladesh, which is a no man's land known as Zero Line. And a lot of the um, IDPs were in that area because they did not want to formally become refugees, they did not want to cross the boundary into Bangladesh. And there is actual um, uh, film made by the border guards of the Myanmar military using loudspeakers to tell people that if they don't cross the border into Bangladesh, they will be killed. And you will see how uh, incredibly important that is to proving the intention to deport as part of the policy of the government. So when I went to the camp 
we can look at the next image. I spoke to groups of survivors to get a better understanding of some of their uh, experiences. Oh. Oops. <laughs> there we go. I hope it's nothing that I said. <laughs> so here you have a group of um, women that had requested um, a meeting and based on the experiences that I had in previous situations I was um, extremely apprehensive about hearing their testimony. And of course you can see that the uh, Rohingya are a very traditional um, Muslim community and I was there uh, during uh, Ramadan which of course was uh, a very uh, important uh, period. So the women um, wanted to tell their stories and being a man I felt uncomfortable about posing any questions that they may not wish to answer. So I didn't pose any questions and I just invited them to share whatever they want. And I was quite astonished by the dignity and courage with which they told stories, which I will not share with you here because it will take <laughs> quite a toll on us. But they were really truly, truly shocking, truly shocking. Um, maybe I can just share the story of one woman who spoke about her infant being thrown into the fire by Tadmadal and, and burnt alive. So these were deeply traumatized women, uh, but the intensity of their stares, even from behind their mirab, uh, told uh, the story, really, of what they have suffered and what they've survived. And it was very humbling once again, and I wanted to begin by uh, telling the story of the survivors because human suffering is not an abstraction. We can sit and talk in abstract theoretical terms about the ICC and the basis for jurisdiction, which I will, but I think that in understanding both the limits and potential of justice, both its gross inadequacy faced with the enormity of the crimes and both its absolute necessity, we have to uh, understand what it means to the ultimate beneficiaries. And I say this in part because of the self-contained uh, elite cultures, uh, which sometimes we become a part of, including at the ICC, when we forget the reality of the mission with which the institution is entrusted. And I will explain that that has very specific consequences on the uh, efficiency with which we're able to respond to this uh, challenge. So the point perhaps about this uh, exercise is to explain that it's very humbling to come face to face with the reality of those that have suffered the unspeakable. And we are reminded that victims are not abstractions, that behind every one of them there is a name, a mother, a father, a child, uh, and that uh, perhaps um, most forcefully explains to us the incredible importance of using what few means uh, there are uh, at our disposal to give these people some measure of justice. And all of them wanted to tell their story. For them, justice was absolutely essential to reclaiming their humanity. I have one a couple of more images. Um, after uh, the harrowing testimony um, of these women, I didn't know what to say. <laughs> and the, 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 the time came for us to leave the camp. And, and what do you tell these people to give them hope? What are your words of, of farewell? So there was a 
an infant there, and I, you know, stroked the infant's uh, head and complimented the mother with how beautiful her child was, which was really a, a desperate attempt to, um, I don't know, end uh, on a positive note to say something hopeful, uh, knowing that um, I could not tell them anything except to listen to their story with, with empathy. Now, most of these women were pregnant, and they were in their third trimester. And if you do the math from the time in August when the mass expulsions took place, uh, to the fact that most of their husbands had been killed, then it became very clear that most, if not all of them, were pregnant as a result of rape. And um, now, as we speak, those women would have infants of three or four months of, of age. So just as the headlines move on to the next fashionable atrocity, um, the survivors are still there um, with a lifetime of uh, suffering and, and, and wounds. One last image which I want to share with you is this extraordinary image when you come to this sea of misery the makeshift homes made of uh, tarpaulin and, and bamboo on the deforested uh, mud hills, I saw a carousel which was uh, made out of wood from the local uh, forest. And there's a man that you see there who literally pushes the children uh, with their hands. And it was an extraordinary image of resilience, of the resilience of the human spirit against impossible odds. This space in the midst of all that suffering where the children could uh, forget the horrors that they have witnessed. So I'm now going to maybe speak um, more about the case, um, but I think that this context explains a lot about both the significance of the case and the parameters of what is realistically uh, achievable. Unlike the um, Chapter 7 Security Council referrals in the case of uh, Sudan and uh, Libya in 2005 and 2011 respectively, the chances of a similar referral today are not slim to none, but zero. It's zero, and we know the story uh, even of the um, posture of the Security Council in relation to Syria, where uh, Russia twice vetoed resolutions to refer the situation of Syria. Um, but today, with the current posture even of the United States towards the ICC, uh, the chances even of a symbolic proposal, which would then be vetoed and rejected, isn't even there. So it's simply not on the agenda of the Security Council. So one has to find alternatives um, which are based on um, the uh, existing basis for jurisdiction, and this is where Bangladesh and the physical location of Kutupalong becomes crucial to the exercise of jurisdiction by the court. So the theory, as most of you will be aware, is that in respect to the crime of deportation, which commences in the territory of Myanmar through the atrocities uh, consisting of uh, uh, murder, rape, destruction of villages, torture, and so on and so forth, that although the crimes begin in the territory of Myanmar, they are concluded on the territory of Bangladesh because the crime of deportation, in contrast to the crime of forcible transfer, 
requires crossing an international border, which is part, part, part of why I wanted to show you the border, the reality of what happens at the border between Myanmar and, and Bangladesh. And Bangladesh being a state party to the ICC uh, creates a basis for the court's jurisdiction. So this idea was being um, talked about, perhaps in an academic way, for some time, and it seemed like a clever uh, you know, article that one would write in a journal or for, I don't know, a master's thesis. But then after some time, it gained some currency, and it became really a credible basis for establishing the court's jurisdiction. So the prosecutor, um, out of uh, understandable need for certainty before commencing any investigation, requested uh, on uh, 9 April of this year an opinion from a pretrial chamber on whether the court would have jurisdiction over the crime of deportation uh, in the specific circumstances of the Rohingya refugee. This was groundbreaking from several points of view. For one thing, Article 19.3 of the ICC statute, which was invoked, uh, was invoked really to um, uh, receive an advisory opinion from the court, which was unprecedented. Typically, Article 19.3, uh, which allows the prosecutor to request a ruling on jurisdiction or admissibility, um, relates to ongoing investigation and not uh, a situation which is still at the preliminary examination phase. So already there was a lot of controversy, both procedurally and substantively, about this approach of the prosecutor. And of course for the prosecutor, um, who is now having to deal with the 20th anniversary of uh, a, a court which um, was hailed as a triumph of international law, which has proved to be quite disappointing in many respects, uh, there was an urgent need for um, some sort of a victory for the court to show its relevance to what is arguably one of the most pressing human rights challenges of our time. So in April of this year, the court also invited the government of Bangladesh, whose territory was the basis for the court's jurisdiction, to submit its views uh, on the, uh, 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 basically the request of the prosecutor. Uh, and that is where I became um, involved in the case, not as an activist, but as, as, as a counsel. And what I can tell you, which is in the public record, is that Bangladesh did respond to the invitation of the court, but it did so on a confidential basis. So I'm not at liberty to share with you what uh, Bangladesh did submit to the court, but the fact that it made a submission uh, is itself quite significant. And of course, you can appreciate from the position of the Bangladesh government, a country with 130 million people, most densely populated country in the world, that having a million refugees on its territory who are highly unlikely ever to be able to return to their homes in Myanmar is a very big problem. And we know about situations historically uh, where significant refugee populations, traumatized refugee populations, are um, not able voluntarily to be repatriated and the consequences which that has. So in the midst of all this, the, um, a, a number of non-governmental organizations also submitted uh, amicus briefs to the court. This included 
the uh, Canadian Partnership for International Justice, which is a coalition of some uh, 20 to 30 Canadian uh, scholars and, and activists, uh, the International Commission of Jurists uh, also uh, filed an amicus brief. And what's curious is that one of the amicus briefs, which was rejected because it was irrelevant to the questions before the court, was by a mysterious think tank based in Yangon, in Myanmar, uh, which uh, one can speculate is intimately linked with the Tatmadaw leadership. And the basic position in the submission was that the Rohingya are all terrorists, and there are really no crimes against humanity except the crimes committed by ARSA against Myanmar civilians. Uh, and it was quite a graphic submission with all sorts of um, photographs of alleged victims of uh, ARSA, but it reflected exactly the reality of a counterinsurgency operation born of a historical injustice against particular minorities, some elements of which have turned to violence. And the uh, equation of counterinsurgency with ethnic cleansing or arguably genocide. The policy of Myanmar is to solve the problem of an ARSA insurgency by eliminating the entire Rohingya population. And once again, it's not the first time that we've seen that uh, approach. The government of Myanmar was also invited to make a submission. And according to the registry of the ICC, Myanmar refused to even receive the uh, invitation. But what it did do subsequently, which I think is quite significant, is to issue a press statement which reads like a legal brief. And I know what press statements are drafted by bureaucrats and foreign ministry officials, and which press statements have been drafted by counsel. So I'm quite convinced Myanmar uh, has retained legal counsel, and what they did was to make quite a sophisticated argument against the jurisdiction of the court, both under Article 19.3, to uh, render an advisory opinion, but also uh, to interpret the jurisdiction of the court restrictively to argue that the court can never exercise jurisdiction uh, in regard to a non-state party. And I will return to, to this uh, issue and explain why the uh, decision which was rendered on September 6th is both radical and routine um, in terms of what it represents for international law. By the 6th of September, when the pretrial chamber rendered its decision, Myanmar had taken a number of steps which makes me believe that they are deeply concerned about the consequences of an ICC investigation and the issuance of uh, arrest warrants. For one thing, the press statement spoke uh, to the legal issues which represented the desire of Myanmar to engage with the court without formally accepting its jurisdiction. But there were statements, uh, actually at the time I was um, at the Kudupanong uh, camp, uh, the Shangri-La summit was taking place in Singapore, and Myanmar officials were basically uh, making an argument that how can there be crimes against humanity, in particular a policy of deportation, if we are negotiating with the government of Bangladesh and the UNHCR the repatriation of the refugees, which is a new position, because the position of Myanmar has been that these people are not 
Myanmar nationals, therefore they have no right to return. So now at least there is some failing of a desire to negotiate voluntary repatriation, and I don't think anyone takes seriously that offer to negotiate, and uh, very few of the people that I spoke with, I think, are willing to return under these circumstances without a significant international presence to protect them against what will certainly be uh, more uh, atrocities and, and mistreatment. What is also significant is that one of the uh, most notorious elements of the Tatmadaw, a certain major general, Mon uh, Mon Soy, who was the head of the Western Command, uh, which was responsible for Rakhine State, who has been um, placed on sanctions list by the governments of Canada, United States, the European Union, and who in August was named as one of six suspects by the UN International Fact-Finding Mission. Fact-Finding missions typically don't name individuals, but in this particular case, this mission took the extraordinary step of naming six people based on the evidence that was available to it after a one-year-long investigation in June uh, of this year, uh, Major General Mon Mong Soe was suddenly dismissed from the Tatmadaw, and it's not clear what position he occupies now, but there's some um, uh, basis to conclude that Myanmar is now beginning to see what the consequence will be of this continuing stigmatization, and uh, it is well on its way to uh, achieving a pariah status. So on September 6th, the pre-trial chamber, by two votes to one, concluded that the court did have jurisdiction based on the fact that the crime of deportation includes as a crucial element the crossing of international border um, and that the prosecutor should expeditiously conclude her preliminary examination and move on to the investigation phase, which as you know would require a uh, certain uh, 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 quantum of evidence and approval by a pretrial chamber. But it was quite exceptional that the pretrial chamber spoke about the right of the victims to expeditious justice, calling upon the prosecutor to accelerate the preliminary examination phase. And I will turn to that shortly. So this has created a lot of controversy many people saying this is a case of jurisdiction overreach. Um, and um, my own view, as suggested by the title of this talk, is that it's actually quite routine to say that the, 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 the territorial jurisdiction of a state, um, which is the basis for the ICC's jurisdiction, and there's no reason, I believe, to say that the basis for territorial jurisdiction is diminished because it's exercised by the International Criminal Court uh, with the consent of states' parties. But it's really quite uh, inconsequential to say that um, crimes which have transnational dimensions um, fall within the principle of territorial jurisdiction. Um, kidnapping, human trafficking, or even uh, typical crimes like fraud, those of us from, uh, from Canada will be familiar with uh, Liebman versus the Queen, a decision in 1985, um, which involved a Canadian um, call center in Toronto, I believe, that was um, selling to the fraudulent 
uh, real estate to Americans uh, with the money being deposited in the bank in Panama and the, the sort of very um, matter-of-fact conclusion of the Supreme Court was that this fell within the territorial jurisdiction of Canada because there was a real and substantial link with the territory of Canada. So to say that there is no real and substantial link with the territory of Bangladesh in this particular case, I think would be, would be absurd. So in that sense, uh, no one will argue that the court has jurisdiction in relation to Myanmar. Myanmar cannot be compelled to enforce arrest warrants, but there is nothing standing in the way of the court from initiating an investigation and issuing those arrest warrants. And as we know, those of us who have been foolish enough to be in this field for 30 years or more, and who still haven't given up, justice is a long game. It took 16 years to arrest Radko Mladic, Radovan Karadzic. When I joined the court, it was unthinkable, unthinkable that they would one day be arrested. So justice is a long game. I typically say it's not justice delayed, it's justice denied. Justice delayed is justice delivered in the world of these weak, fledgling institutions. Um, and my hope is that um, in this particular case, uh, over time, this investigation, this scrutiny will at least deter Myanmar from committing atrocities against the 400,000 Rohingya that remain um, and perhaps even give um, some measure of uh, solace to the um, survivors. So I'm going to stop there, and um, I'm happy to have a discussion.